Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online, and we were discussing the fact that I am 43, and she said, I cannot believe how young you look, and I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. Any of you who've thought about running for office or working on a campaign, I know what you've thought. Am I qualified? Is it the right time? Would I be good at this? Should I run? And I am telling you, yes, to all of them. Don't wait. I mean, literally, there are, you know, 45 to 65 year old white dudes. No offense. I love my dad and my husband, and they both fall in that category. but who don't think twice about this question. This is Sarah from the left. And Beth from the right. You're You're listening to Pantsuit Politics. No No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance. Beautiful, thank you. (laughs) All right. Hello everyone and happy International Women's Day. Yay! We are celebrating today by sharing portions of the Seismic Shift event. Ambassador Swanee Hunt and her team invited us and lots of remarkable women doing remarkable political work to the historic Metropolitan AME Church in Washington, D.C. And so we're going to share portions of that conversation with you. We also want to share the full thing with everyone 
it's just long. And so we wanted to put it in a place where you can kind of settle in and get cozy and listen to it. So it will be in our Patreon feed, patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics. But you do not have to be a Patreon supporter in order to get this content. Now, while you're there, you might want to check out all (laughs) of the things that we try to do to give value to the people who support us financially. Listener support is a huge part of our show. So feel free to browse and stay a while while you're there. But you can hear this entire event without being a Patreon supporter in that feed. But we're going to give you some highlights today to kind of whet your appetite. And we hope that you are as excited about these conversations as we were to have them. Before we get started, we did want to say that now if you go to I think you're wrong, but I'm listening.com, our book website, you can still get bonus content based on how many books you buy. So if you have bought a book and have not received the discussion guide, go to the website and you can fill out the form with your confirmation number and get the book discussion guide. If you buy five or more books, you will get access to the webinar we did during the pre-order about having difficult family conversations surrounding politics. If you buy 25 or more books, we really love you, and we will Skype in for 20 minutes for your group discussion or book club discussion. And if you buy 100 or more books, you are our best friends, and we will give you 50% off our speaking fee. So we would come and talk to your group. So I think you're wrong, but I'm listening.com. Just go to the book website, and you can see all the purchase bonuses. So you're going to first hear Ambassador Hunt welcoming everyone. And you might remember Ambassador Hunt has been on our show before. She served as the ambassador to Austria during the Clinton administration and has since built a foundation that studies the impact of when women get involved in politics, particularly in the national security realm and the international security realm. Lots of amazing things that Ambassador Hunt has done in her life. And so she's going to welcome everyone. And then the first voice you'll hear after Ambassador Hunt will be Kelly Dittmar from the Center for American Women in Politics. We talked with Kelly about why the center's work is still needed, even though we had this surge of women coming into Congress in 2018. So you're in the church where I'm a member, and it is the closest I could get to my upbringing as a Southern Baptist, uh, which is where I came from. It's not where I am right now, but uh, we used to spend 18 hours a, a week in church. So this is a big deal to me, to be here. And Frederick Douglass was a member here, and so I just compared myself to Frederick Douglass, which is a stretch. It's a real stretch. But Eleanor Roosevelt spoke here, etc. And and so it's a thrill. It's a big deal to me. And if you can wander up to the sanctuary upstairs, I I urge you to do that. Part of the Underground Railroad, the middle of one movement after another, whether it's civil rights or whether it's it's AIDS, etc. So you're in in the company of great spirits here. So Kelly, we wanted to start by talking about your organization was founded in 1971. Mm -hmm. And at the time it was said, we do not need this because there's nothing to talk about with women in politics. I would just love to hear you contrast that moment with today. We, you know, certainly feel like close to 50 years worth of work really came into play this cycle. In other words, people were like, oh, there's all these women running. 
what's up with that? We need to talk to people who understand and have been doing this work. And so it was a year for us that was incredibly busy, but we obviously take that as a really uh, important point of progress, that people were paying attention to the role of women in politics and specifically the underrepresentation of women in politics and contrasting that with what was happening in 2018, which was record numbers of women running and then ultimately record numbers of women winning. So I think the work that we've been doing sort of had been proven important this year, though we knew for 50 years that it was important that we were in this space with a, num a number of other organizations that you'll, you'll hear from uh, who also have been doing the work and laying the groundwork so that we could get to this point of having a record number of women winning and running for office. Do we have good momentum now or is it gonna be like another 50 years of work <laughs> yeah. needed to get it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I think this year hopefully proved the importance of increasing women's candidacies. So people ask all the time, what's it gonna take to get to political parity, right? Um, what, what is it gonna take to get to 50%? Well, it's gonna take more women running. Um, and certainly there are all sorts of structural barriers um, in, in place to make it harder for women to run. So I don't wanna put this all on women too often. It's like, well, women don't wanna run, so it's their fault. In reality, we know from all of our research that there are a lot of barriers to even getting women to that point of candidacy. But this year proved that if we have more women on the ballot, more women will win and we'll get closer to political parity. So how do we make it so that it is a friendly environment for women to both choose to run, but also if they choose to run, to be able to find support and success. And that means tackling the barriers that are within parties, the stereotypes that voters have, you know, all of the things that we've been working on and, and our partner organizations have been working on to try to clear those hurdles for women on the path to success. Um, so one thing I'll say about is this year a blip is hopefully it isn't, right? But it, it will be a blip if we look at and allow the media narrative to be like, look, we succeeded this year, so we're good. Check the box off, move on. This was a year of the woman in a wave and a tsunami. Um, when in fact, women are still less than 25% of members of Congress, less than 30% of state legislatures, nine of 50 governors. And then if we wanna break it down by party and race, we're talking about even more severe levels of underrepresentation of women in our system. And so if we can continue to talk about this as a problem in need of solving and say that this year was a start to that solution and we have to do better, um, then I think we'll, we'll see this be a trend and not an anomaly. The entire event was organized around these questions. Why is this important? Where are we currently with women in representation and where are we going next? So the next section was the question of basically why are women running now? Building off Kelly sort of giving us a lay of the land and how they're running differently from each other. And for this panel, which was truly amazing, we had Muthani Wambu Kral, who is the vice president of national outreach and training at Emily's List, and had the new job of national political and organizing director for the DNC. So she really had insight as to why women are running now. And when you look at 2018 and the results of 2018, the lessons we can learn. Well, look, and I think that what Kelly said is absolutely uh -huh. right, that question. I mean, I spent 
seven of the almost 10 years that I've been at Emily's List building out our state and local program, which a lot of folks don't even realize that we work down the ballot and not just at the federal level. But something that we saw really shift was going from why would I do that to, oh, I must Mm -hmm. do that. It became a calling that went beyond their fears um, to, I guess, a different fear was motivating. And Mm -hmm. it was that realization that if not me, then this continues and this is hurting everything, everyone. I can't look my kids in the eye. I cannot... I I have to be able to answer the question, where were you and what did you do in a way that is not me sitting at home with my my Chardonnay, Mm -hmm. um, you know, for the next year or two. So there has been a shift and it has been an incredible, it's been an incredible opportunity to be a part of that. I want to talk to you about what it's like on the grounds and pick up that thread Kelly was talking about. When we don't have one young mother We don't have one Muslim woman. We don't have one Native woman. We have all these people breaking the mold and saying, I'm going to do this differently. I'm going to talk about it differently. My commercials are going to be different. What's that like when it's not one person? We have lots of molds being broken. Did you feel like that was a lifting and everybody took a like, oh, I can, I can, she's giving me permission to do this differently? Absolutely. And I saw it the day that we had our January 2017 training where we built a room that suddenly 900 people registered to come into. uh, And it was um, something we put together in three weeks. So um, to have that number explode and then to have almost 500 women join us that day, um, over half that room, women who were age 45 and under, over half that room were women of color. And it was an incredible indicator of the shift. And they were women like Lauren Underwood, who has now joined this freshman class in Congress, who joined us as a woman with a pre-existing condition mm. and who ran against her Republican congressman because he was voting to take away Obamacare. So we had women stepping forward who really were kind of breaking the mold. These were women who never saw themselves as the forward-facing. They were the behind-the-scenes mm-hmm. policy or teachers or in their chemistry labs or CIA officers not folks who ever saw themselves as running for office and being elected officials. So when we talk about how it happens, we're talking about real pragmatic realities like training, like fundraising. Did you see any molds being broken this year as the numbers swelled and those sort of approaches? 100%. Um, It's just, this is, we are in the page is turning, right? It is. um, And I think we have so many more choices And that is what has felt so patently unfair about this underrepresentation and why it has harmed our democracy. When we now see what happens, literally what it means to have fresh perspectives, um, people who are are coming from all various backgrounds in terms of their professions. And when I have women, even at the state and local level who, you know, I don't know that I always tells this part of her story, but she does not have her undergraduate degree. And so when I stand in classrooms and I say to folks there, no, you do not have to have a law degree to run for office. Mm-hmm. You don't even need to have a college degree. It is really helpful to have someone this powerful and who has already made such a mark on our country, who absolutely, she had to leave and went home to help take care of her mom and never finished her degree. And look at where she is today. And so we need these kinds of examples to show folks 
up and down the economic scale all across, but it is making sure that everybody sees that they have value. Their lived experience is extremely valuable to a healthy and vibrant democracy. Well, and that's such a good point. It's not, we talk about it so often as they bring that fresh perspective to legislating and governing. But I think what we saw this time is that diversity and that fresh perspective changes campaigns too. It changes how people campaign. It changes how people fundraise. It changes the conversations that surround campaigns. Who comes with them. Yes. The communities they're representing. It's so that's all matters too. Yeah. Absolutely, that's essential. First of all, it's so smart. And when Republican friends of mine, they, they come to me and they say, how can I start? an Emily's list, you know? <laughs> well, seriously, I mean, you yeah. you are a model. Oh, oh, I didn't tell you ever this, because I've worked in 60 countries, okay? And and on I work with women in all these places, and, and they're trying to too. figure they out how to, too. and yeah. I mean, Emily's list is one of like two examples yeah. that I give them, and they're on the edge of their seats. Yeah. So your effect, yeah, we, we, we're so used to thinking about our country, your effect is global. And I'm so proud of you. When we think about your outreach, we think about in this country, in terms of the work you specifically are doing with Thony, and what you're doing here is global. Well, and you are 100% right. We are, I, I, I actually say that we're in a global moment for women. Yeah. Um, I think women all over the world are seeing that, you know, the rise in populism is problematic. And I will never forget, in fact, when Secretary at that time Clinton said, I don't know what it is about extremism or conservatism, but the first thing that they need to do, no matter what we're talking about, what religion, is oppress women. And I think that that's, realization and fear has become very in front of women right now all over the all over the world realizing the vulnerability frankly of not being represented um, and the vulnerability that a rise in populism presents potentially for them uh, and so we are seeing folks coming to us um, from Europe from Asia from Africa from all over Latin America and having really strong conversations about what it takes and what it takes is this intentional, intensive operation that is separate from the party. It is, we work obviously with Democratic women, but we are not located inside of a party, and this is part of what I say to them as well. Um, And therefore, you know, and it is this intentionality, and we have built out a program that began in a much different place to one where, you know, the reason that we tripled the number of governors in 2018 and um, elected seven women to the Senate, flipping two of those seats from red to blue and elected 41 women to Congress, um, 24 of those who helped Democrats to flip the House and over 300 women to state and local offices across the country requires a mighty operation. Um, And we are still punching above our weight, I mean, to be clear. But we spent almost $13 million on the hard side in terms of bundling for candidates. We spent over $45 million on the independent side of things, helping to raise the profiles and get the message out around the candidates who we were supporting. So it takes a lot of resources to create the victories that we've seen. And we know that we're still not at parity. So it feels incredible to be in this moment, but you see us already very focused 
on 2019 and 2020 and what's ahead. We wanted to make sure that we heard from a woman who had the experience of running for office. And there was no one we would rather talk to about that than our good friend Sarah Riggs Amico, who you probably remember ran for lieutenant governor in Georgia. And Sarah's experience is such an important one because she ran very hard. She got lots and lots of votes and she ran in a state that is gripped by kind of a crisis of confidence around elections. So what Sarah learned from her race, I think, has really long-term implications, and we're excited for you to hear a bit more from her. I learned two things. Number one, Georgia is not a red state. And I want to be very clear. You just heard from Emily's list how they're going to look to take control of the Senate. Let me assure you, getting David Perdue's seat over into the blue in 2020 is not only possible, it will be essential if there is hope to flip that Senate. Um, So it is not a red state. I would argue it is a blue state with a voter suppression and turnout problem. And so that's the lesson number one. Lesson number two is I don't think people understand just how fragile the institutions in our democracy are and how important it is for each and every one of you to engage in the work that makes sure they are protected and talked about in a transparent manner. Um, What we saw in Georgia really was nothing less than potentially the theft of the gubernatorial election. And and I hate to say it in such melodramatic terms. I don't think you should apologize for that. Yeah, well, you don't want to say it, though, right? I mean, I don't know about y'all, but before November 6th and before I was a candidate for statewide office, I assumed when we go to the ballot box, your vote is accurately counted. It's the most fundamental issue in a democratic republic there is. But what I learned is that there's still work to do and that if we don't talk about it, and we don't talk about it in very direct terms and name it and be specific and use data and illustrative examples and continue the conversation even when it makes folks uncomfortable, then we have no hope of preserving those institutions that ensure our kids will inherit the kind of democracy we grew up in. What did you see and experience is the intersection when there are those sort of voter suppression, electoral issues and women running for office? You know, it's interesting, right? Um, I think what it does is women are deeply pragmatic. So I like to say we have a strong spine and a pragmatic streak. So we understand what we need to do to get a job done, but we also understand that we can't take our ball and go home every time somebody disagrees with us. Incidentally, that's something maybe 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue could learn. <laughs> you know, that's, that's not the real world, right? If I go into the company that I run and I steadfastly refuse to work with anybody who disagrees with me, I would be summarily fired, and rightly so, because I couldn't do my job. And that's what you're experiencing now. So I think when women are put into that crucible, look, the reality is, guys, pressure makes diamonds. And you've got this opportunity, I think, for new faces and voices of leadership to emerge. And it's not that there's some magic to being female or to looking a certain way or having a certain eye color or skin color that makes you better at governing. But collectively, we are better as the government, the representation of our people starts to look more and be more representative in all facets of the people that are governed. And so I think women are gonna be a huge part of that. So Sarah, you run a trucking company. I do. So I'm sure that's like, what they all thought when I walked in. <laughs> <laughs> so you're like not a stranger to environments that are traditionally not 
run by women. (laughs) And I would love to ask you what you see as the parallels between the private and the public sector and how you think the two relate in terms of this momentum that we've heard about so far. Like, do we lift up women in the private sector as much as we're lifting up women in the public space right now? What are the challenges in each space? How do we make those two more supportive of each other? Yeah, so it's interesting, right? Uh, I run a 90-year-old trucking company, and I am the only woman in 90 years to run it. And until I became chairman and added another woman to the board, I was the only woman in the boardroom. And before that, I was the only department head in a media company full of executives. Um, So I've spent my whole career as literally the only woman on a board or in a management team. And I I spent the early years of my career, so I graduated, I know I look young, by the way, um, but I actually graduated from Harvard Business School with my MBA in 2003. So I've been out for over 15 years. And I would say the first half of that career I spent trying to pretend gender didn't matter. Let me tell you why that is ignorant and futile. Um, (laughs) Number one, it matters very much. Um, I think what's deeply embedded in that sentiment is sexism because it presumes that the female perspective doesn't have something to bring to the table that's necessary and important and enlightening and useful. So I think as it, you know, the second half of the last 15 years where I've had to get comfortable is learning how to use the different ways I see the world as a woman, as a mom, as a working mom, as a wife. You know, learning how to use that to wield power and authority and problem-solving skills in a way that's authentic to who I am and effective. And so the parallel that I would draw is not so much about representation. I mean, look, we're abysmal at both representation in the halls of power governmentally and in the boardroom. As a country, we've got a long way to go, guys. And it's interesting, right? If you look at Fortune 100, Fortune 500 CEOs who are female, not very many of them, but they dramatically overperform in market returns their male peers. And I think that has to do with how hard it is for them to ascend to the top of the org chart. So I don't think the question is one of representation. We have work to do on both fronts there. The question is learning what is it about my experience or anyone's experience, whether it's how you look, who you love, how or if you pray, where you're from, how much money you have, what kind of background of field of study you had. How do we learn to use our unique experiences to further develop the decision-making process in a way that gets better governance outcomes? Knowing what you know now, would you do it again? Oh my gosh, a million times over. Like, absolutely. (laughs) And here's the thing, even if the outcome weren't different, and I think that's something we need to hear. And for women in the room, any of you who've thought about running for office or working on a campaign, I know what you've thought. Am I qualified? Is it the right time? Would I be good at this? Should I run? And I am telling you, yes, to all of them. Don't wait. I mean, literally, there are, you know, 45 to 65-year-old white dudes. No offense. I love my dad and my husband, and they both fall in that category. (laughs) Um, But who don't think twice about this question. It's It's always a good thing to ask yourself. Would a man ask himself this question? Yeah, and I think we've got to get over this imposter syndrome. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not just a problem if you want to run for office. It's a problem for your kids and your grandkids 
These are learned behaviors. And it will not happen to my daughters who are six and eight. I won't allow it. I want them to own the skills and the power and the confidence in the gifts that God gave them. And I think we earn that and we deserve it just as much as any man in the country. After the close-up of Sarah's race, we wanted to zoom way out and talk about the big picture, particularly with regards to the presidency. And the question everybody's asking, which is, why don't we have a woman president yet? So we had a conversation with Marianne Schnall, who is the founder of What Will It Take? Because she wrote a book, What Will It Take to Have a Woman President? And she had really fascinating insight. What is your conclusion about why we haven't had a woman president yet? I know that's a really easy question that can be answered in like a phrase. Well, I would definitely say that like that's why it took such a big book to look at it because there are so many different reasons for why we haven't had one. And and I'm hopeful that we may see one soon. I actually thought that my book was going to become dated at this last election, that we were going to have um, our first female president. And we very well may um, in this upcoming election, we already have three uh, women who've who've stepped up to to announce that they're running. I think Kamala Harris may also announce. um, And that's historic. But why we haven't had a woman president, I think that and it's connected to what it will take to make a woman president. Um, You know, I think it's just the truth of sort of the inherent sexism that has been in our culture that's impacting cross industries. Um, And I think that there's been a little bit of a complacency. I think we didn't really even we we sort of like didn't realize um, how how serious this problem was or acknowledge it was a problem, that these numbers are so low. I think if there's one thing that's come out of the election of Donald Trump is this renewed awakening of, of, the, of these realizations, of the fact that there isn't this, this equity and the need for, for, for more women in diversity, um, not just in politics, but cross culture. But I think, you know, there's cultural and structural reasons. I mean, a lot of people who spoke previously talked about some of the, the structural reasons that um, there are, and there are cultural reasons. I mean, we don't, first of all, raise our girls and women to see themselves as leaders in the first place. Um, we, you know, often, you know, encourage girls to, you know, either focus on their looks or to want to, you know, fit in and please. And, and that becomes problematic later as, as leaders. I mean, you see this whole question of like whether women leaders are likable, which is ridiculous, you know, and I think, you know, this portrayal of, by the media of uh, confident, ambitious women as somehow negative. Um, and I think that's confusing, especially if girls are groomed being to want to be liked that, you know, you would be received this all this negativity and backlash and scrutiny if you do try to do something like run for office. And then I just think that, you know, there there are no systems in place that are really supporting women in the ways that we need them to. I think that, you know, what I'm hoping to even just spotlighting through events like this and what we'll take, there are programs and great programs and organizations, many of which in this room that are working to elect women um, and help them run. Um, And I also think there's also the challenge of um, the role of money. Um, I remember, you know, when I interviewed Nancy Pelosi and she was talking about how we need to sort of increase, you know, the civility of of running, because obviously that can be a very uh, daunting prospect, but also reduce the role of money, not just benefits women, but benefits, you know, all of democracy. So I think there's so many reasons why we haven't had a woman president, but I actually feel really hopeful. We broke that glass ceiling. Hillary won the popular vote. 
I think this flooding of the pipelines with all of these women who raise up to, to run and are winning um, and these wins for diversity, uh, seeing more women, different women. You know, a lot of times, even when I was doing my book, it got so associated with Hillary. We, we now are going to have a diversity of women running for president that everybody may be able to see themselves. So I feel um, as, as much as daunting the problems are in the world, and yes, they are, I'm, I'm energized and hopeful by of what I see mounting and the energy that's, that's you know, occurring. So. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I, it was so striking to me that you know, with, with Kamala Harris about to mm. announce, I think the first four people mm. to announce that they're running are women. And yet, I don't hear that, and that's mm -hmm. cool. Yeah, it's just cool. Exactly. And, and when I was hearing immediately after the election, oh, gee, who's going to run? They would say Cory Booker, you know, mm -hmm. uh, Kamala Harris, let's say, uh, and they would raise uh, Kirsten Gillibrand and Tulsi Gabbard's run. Yeah, yeah, and they would they would also raise you know uh, <coughs> Elizabeth Warren oh, yeah. and and a few others like Joe Biden, et cetera. But but no one said, oh. You know, Cory Booker, he's African-American. Mm -hmm. And oh, uh, Elizabeth Warren, oh, and she's a woman. Like, it's like, it, it was a non-issue. Mm -hmm. It was a non-issue. And I, I'm going to repeat it again, what you just said. Yeah. Hillary broke the glass ceiling. Right. Yeah. And it was just a different ceiling mm -hmm. than we understood or than she understood. It wasn't about a woman governing. It was yeah. about breaking open yeah. this whole world of women running and winning. Yeah. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsuit Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. No thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash pantsuit. 
looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life, Aura frames are beautiful, Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. You guys, I love my Aura frames. I have one in my office. I have one in my kitchen. I have given one as a housewarming gift. I have given one as Mother's Day. Father's Day. They are the most amazing gifts because this app is a game changer, in my personal opinion, in digital frames. It makes it so, so easy to get the pictures on there and even videos. It plays like you're in Harry Potter, you guys. It is the best. I love mine so much. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use code Pantsuit at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. So after Marianne helped give us some context on the really big picture, we wanted to dive into what worked in 2018 as a platform to build on in the future. And so Sarah had a wonderful discussion with Ashanti Golar, who is the former political director of Emerge America. Courtney Hill, our friend who you heard recently, who is a political consultant and has her own firm, Polaris Strategies. Sabrina Schaefer, who is on the board for Right Now, a Republican organization that helps women running for office. And Cynthia Terrell, who is the executive director of Represent Women, which does amazing work and very much advocates for ranked choice voting. So this was a great conversation. Well, what worked well from our end is the fact that we had women prepared and ready to run. I like to joke that my job is to make it very difficult for people to tell me they can't find qualified women to run for office. That's right. I'm literally like, tell me that to my face. (laughs) I want you to. Because if you say there aren't, we will fight today. Don't let my size fool you. Like we can tango. And the thing is, we have to make investments in women and we have to be ready. I really just can't stand when an election cycle comes up and we scramble and we're like, well, who's going to run? Who can do it? When you have that bench of women who are ready to step up and say, I will be the prosecutor. I will be the judge. I will be the member of Congress. That is great. But it's also the fact that we gave citizens, voters, exciting candidates. Yes. Mm-hmm. The energy that we saw in 2018, people loved who they were voting for. But most importantly, they saw themselves in those candidates because they were authentic. They talked about the facts, such as Lucy McBath. I lost my son to gun violence. I was a victim of the housing crisis. I declared bankruptcy. I have family members that are suffering from opioid addiction. When they tell those stories, that makes us want to get out and vote because we know that we have representatives that care and they know. And they're just not saying things to get us to vote for them. Mm -hmm. When they get elected into office, they will do them. And it's one of the reasons why I'm so excited about this 116th Congress. It's only been a month and even though we're in the middle of the shutdown, you see what Representative Maxine Waters is doing with increasing diversity. You see the freshman women having this bond, this sisterhood. That's what we need. And that is what works well when we're ready and having people ready to run. Mm -hmm. Well, I want to say before we move on from Emerge, I think that that sisterhood 
that is a lovely benefit, but it is what works about a merge mm -hmm. because when I ran for city commission, I ran with a friend who went through a merge who was mayor mm -hmm. and running for office can be really lonely. Yeah, It's a yeah. lonely experience. And so, especially as a woman. Mm -hmm. And so when you have other women to say, oh my gosh, I'm not by myself. I can get on a Facebook group and we can yeah. all complain about how unfairly <laughs> we are treated in the media. Yeah. And we can all share about why people are stealing our yard signs. And we can just, yeah. we can commiserate and you don't feel like you're alone. And that's not just, sister, it is not just a nice word. It is a benefit. It is something mm -hmm. I see like male candidates are jealous of. They oh, are yeah. jealous of a merge. Like mm -hmm. they are legitimately like, nobody trained me. And I'm like, Oh, I feel so. No, I don't feel bad for you. You're I don't doing, feel bad for you. Right. Yeah, You're doing stop. just fine. Y'all are still You're all right. Also, not my problem. Go <laughs> right. something. You know what I mean? Like, so I just think that that is that's something that works. It is. Is it's a network. It's a sister. It's going to work when they're that sisterhood in Congress. They're going to mm -hmm. legislate better because they have that that yeah. connection and that network and benefit and just support system. Yeah, we have five of our emerge alums that got elected to Congress yes. in 2018. <laughs> Do you feel like there are system and rules changes that in 2018 that worked well, or you feel like some of the holding back was still, some of those systems and rules are still in place? I think that there are more broadly some important rules and systems changes that happen around um, the access to the ballot and the ability of people to participate uh, fairly in elections. So I'm a fan of automatic voter registration and ballot mm -hmm. access and mm -hmm. um, early voting and same day registration and a whole collection of things that really create a level playing field from which everybody can participate. So in that sense, yes, there were important rules um, made. But I think the fact that we don't have a, 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 an affirmative right to vote in the Constitution uh, puts all those voting rights in peril. And we see that um, in Georgia, in uh, Washington, D.C., in, in really every You see any conversation. People have conversations about whether it's a right or a privilege. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Um, and so there's a lot uh, that falls away from that, the fact that we um, don't have any uh, standards at the, the highest level mm -hmm. to figure out um, uh, who can vote, when they can vote, when they can register, who's enfranchised, who's disenfranchised, et cetera. So um, I think we have a lot of work to do. Um, and specifically on the issue of women's representation, there are systematic barriers that prevent women from operating on a level playing field at mm -hmm. each stage of her political existence. Mm -hmm. And the, the three or four buckets that, of work that we really focus on are um, who are the gatekeepers that even recruit the women to run in the first right. place? Who are the donors? Mm -hmm. Who are the mm -hmm. PACs? Who are the political party leaders? Or just the, the guys, tends to often be guys, mm -hmm. who are saying, well, she's not done enough yet. Right. She mm -hmm. hasn't, you know, she may be a businesswoman with a Harvard Law School degree, but that's not right. up to snuff. Mm -hmm. So they're gatekeepers. And the way to address that, I think, is to mimic the work that Swani knows quite a bit about mm -hmm. of the targets that are used in other countries. 76 mm -hmm. nations rank above us. Yeah. in women's representation and it's not because the women there are better i'm here to tell you it's that they have better rules and systems so that's that's the work i know so targets for PACs, parties gatekeepers so that more women run in the first place voting system reforms so that they're more likely to win we now have a climate with our plurality winner take all voting system it's going to be happening soon in the presidential selection process where all of us are going to have to make a calculation who 
who has the best chance to win? I can't vote for my favorite because that my favorite might hurt my second chance. So there's this ranked ballot system, which is there's a flyer on the back. So that's an important part of the conversation. Courtney and I bonded on this. <laughs> I would give anything for that in the Democratic Ranked choice. Yeah. Ranked yeah. choice, anything. Tell me what I have to do this while I'm so bad. You can talk later. Yeah. Yeah. Really, it's true. It, it, go online and read about ranked choice. It makes so, so much sense. So, so, so much sense. It does, it does. And it's a, I like to describe it as a partisan neutral tool mm -hmm. to ensure uh, increased turnout, more civility, um, no split votes, uh, no lesser of two evil voting, and uh, ensure that the um, winner who has majority support is actually elected. And I'll point out yeah. the course of the nation might have been different in the year 2000. And the course of the nation might have been different uh, in the year 2016 Absolutely. had we had a majority requirement to serve in the highest elected office in the land. And, and it gives space to independents. Mm -hmm. It's based in yeah, That's huge. Of whom the largest proportion of younger voters, their affiliation is independent or mm -hmm. else. And you don't know how this works mm -hmm. unless you Google it, okay? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, yep. Courtney, what do you think worked well in 2018? From a black woman's perspective, I think black women saw themselves in people like Stacey Abrams. Mm -hmm. HBCU graduate, mm -hmm. a woman rocking her natural hair, a woman mm -hmm. with a real life story. You know, I'm taking care of my parents. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm in debt. I'm, in, I'm on a payment plan. And, you know, my brother has gotten into some trouble in the past. Those are real stories that we don't like to talk about in politics. Mm -hmm. You know, we talk about it behind the scenes, but we all have the hand list. Yeah. Oh, uh, mm -hmm. Let's nuance that. I don't know. We should share that. And so black women saw themselves in Stacey Abrams. And he said, you know what? We need to get behind this sister. And we have power. And you just saw a black women from all of the United States mobilizing in their communities, mobilizing in Georgia, getting behind Stacey Abrams, Andrew Gillum, Ben Jealous, and saying, you know what? These are our people. We have a voice and we have to be boots on the ground. We have to raise money mm -hmm. for them because that's a big obstacle with black candidates, you know? Mm -hmm. And so you really just saw black folks seeing themselves in candidates like Stacey and Andrew and, and Ben. What do you think worked to get those candidates in front of those people to begin with? Having people like Stephanie James and, mm -hmm. and, and Quentin James, her husband with the collective pack, mm -hmm. and having black consultants who know the struggle, who understand mm -hmm. the pipeline, and seeing those kind of people. Black people are very visual people, and we and we just gotta see it to believe it. Yeah. You know, and so having handlers that look like us, you know, I, I have two teenage children, and when I see the type of people that they surrounded themselves with, the people who were putting them in front of us, I saw my children, I saw my daughters. And so that means something to black because we got to see it to believe it because we know that there's so many behind the scene forces that holds candidates who looks like us back. And so to see that, to have black folks putting them in our faces, I think really made a difference for us and it, it made it very real for us and it made it easy for us to to go in our communities to talk to our friends to talk to our sorority sisters our frat brothers and say you know what they're viable mm -hmm. and they're competitive mm -hmm. we need to get behind these people and i mean you saw people raising money people traveling to georgia to florida to maryland really just being boots on the ground for these candidates and so we just have to see it 
and we have to see more of us across the board, not just in candidates, but in their staff as well. Serena, what do you think worked in 2018? Well, I love the energy, and I thought it was great that so much of politics was actually made personal. And I think if you look at the state level, there was a lot of interesting work being done. There was a lot of success. Um, I think if you look at the federal level, and I don't mean to be Debbie Downer at the end here, but I think you know, the reality is that the women only nudged up by a couple of percentage points. We really didn't make that much progress. We just sort of swapped women in and out, people um, you know, lost seats, other people gained seats. Um, and so I think that you know, if the goal is ultimately to have greater parity uh, between the genders in, at the national level, um, the only way you're going to get there is if you get more Republican women to run, because we have Democratic women running. Um, and the only way to get Republican women to run, um, in addition to helping support what everything that Julie's doing and what groups like Right Now are doing, um, is to get the sort of, you know, general sort of people on the right, people who maybe believe in, in limited government and, and whatnot, um, to start taking gender differences seriously in the political sphere. And until they do that, until they really see that um, women, you know, having more women doctors might make a difference, but also having more women senators might make a difference, right? <laughs> that, that gender can translate from the, the non-political sphere to the political sphere is really important. And once they start to really see that, that gender matters, um, and that that's not playing identity politics. It's just recognizing that we all bring different parts of ourselves to the table. Um, I've, I've talked about this in a lot of forums and I say, you know, um, being a woman is part of my identity. It's not all of who I am, but I am a mother. Um, I am a wife. Um, I, I care, you know, help uh, parents who are getting older. There's lots of things that sort of you know, define who I am. And I think that to sort of ignore that and to think that my husband and I would sort of behave exactly the same way because we might vote the same way is silly. It's sort of, it's overlooking this huge talent pool. Um, and, and that's very important. And so I think we really need to, if, we, if the goal is to get more women in general into Congress, um, then we need to get more Republicans to start paying attention. The elephant in the room. Oh, y'all are going to like what I did just there. <laughs> is, <laughs> is that there is a lack of female representation specifically on the Republican side. And for this event, it was really important to all of us to really talk about that in a real, transparent, authentic, honest way. And so Beth led a panel with Julie Conway, who is the executive director of ViewPack. Rebecca Schuler, Executive Director of Winning for Women. Rena Shaw, who is the co-founder of Women's Public Leadership Network. And Corey Whalen, a writer and former Capitol Hill Communications Director. And these are all conservative women really concerned about the lack of female representation in the Republican Party and trying to get at what do we need to do to get more Republican women to run for office. Even though we do focus on Democratic women, I do think it is important to have Republican women in office Absolutely. because at the end of the day, being women, we know we're more collaborative. We are consensus driven. When we agree on something, we will reach across the aisle and work to get good done because women run for office to accomplish things, to better our communities, our families, our cities. And we want that representation. And I do think that when women come together, Democrat, independent, Republican, libertarian, we can accomplish things mm -hmm. together. And we have to remember that part of politics is what can we all do together? For me as a feminist, I was really interested in Kelly's, oh, Kelly's still here. Some of her research that says as people get more partisan, as the parties become more ideologically extreme, you see less difference in the way men and women govern. And I think that's, that's a, that's a red flag, you know, and I think that I don't want 
The reason I want more female representation on the conservative side is because I don't want female representation to become a solely democratic issue. Right. Like, I don't mm -hmm. want feminism to become a polarizing thing where we can't all agree that women deserve equal representation or that women deserve mm -hmm. equal pay because, well, if I say that, that makes me a liberal. Or if I say that, that makes me a Democrat. Like, I want it to be a nonpartisan issue. And you can't make it a nonpartisan issue if it's only Democrats sitting up talk about, talking mm -hmm. about it in our current environment. And so I think that that, to me, is what, you know, if I care about this issue, the more I can make it something that the, is talked about across the spectrum, the better that issue is going to be. How can we recruit more Republican women to run for office when so many Republican women are getting the message from both right and left that maybe there's not a place for you in the party at all? You know, Beth, I think that that's uh, one of the, the issues that's really challenging, frankly, for the Republican Party right now and something that... You know, I, I think that organizations probably like everyone um, up on this dais are really working to to change. Um, I think there's a lot of factors that go into that. You know, peer representation, really, frankly, is one of them. Um, but it's more than that. You know, it's, it's a bigger issue than just what we are trying to change from these groups' perspectives. You know, it's something that, you know, I think all of our organizations, um, I certainly know that mine is, is really trying to make sure that we are working with a public-facing view, um, making sure that there's media representation to show that you know our women are normal and cool and worthy of votes as well, and that they're there and that there is a place for them in the party. And look, we've got a lot of work to do on that. Um, and I, but I, I think there's hope. I think the more that we see good, strong women candidates and that they understand that they have the resources that are there to support them through the really tough thing that they will have to go through if they do decide to jump in, you know, it makes it just that much easier to do so. But you know, I'm not, I'm not all roses. We, we've, we've got a ton to do. So I was, was a Republican. I find it very difficult to consider myself one in this climate. Um, that's not to say that I couldn't be brought back, but I think I'm kind of a living example when they talk about the suburban um, women, especially white women who are leaving the Republican Party in droves. I'm kind of one of those people. Um, you know, I, I voted for Mitt Romney. Um, I was, you know, very much a Republican. I, I was the head of the college Republicans when I was in college. I graduated a decade ago now, but back then um, I thought the Republican Party was getting better. And I, I hope personally that Trump is an aberration, that this version of the GOP doesn't continue personally. Um, I could be brought back into the fold, but you know, I spent the past two years um, on Capitol Hill as a communications director for a Republican member. And I couldn't vote for Trump in 2016. Uh, my former boss, uh, Justin Amash, uh, publicly stated that he didn't vote for Trump either. Um, you know, and this is more of kind of like the libertarian end of the GOP spectrum, but personally right now, um, I just don't see myself as being involved, but I, I'm glad to see that there are people still hanging on. I just, I've, I've, I'm cynical is the truth about the current status quo. And I do feel like um, a lot of Republicans and especially a lot of Republican men have shown sides of themselves in the Trump era that I, I find very disappointing. I created my organization for women just like Corey, exactly what she said, uh, the fact that she can't really identify with today's Republican Party, that she's one of those voters that sort of says, I'm not a Republican right now. 
that's exactly why my co-founders and I created Women's Public Leadership Network. And people don't know of us because we've just formed last year. We haven't had a DC splashy launch party. We have not been mentioned in Politico except for our co-founders' names. And we don't care because the work is in the States and we need a pipeline and we need a one-stop shop. And I have been part of many efforts, really proud to be a supporter of UPAC um, this year. And, and I've tried to put my money where my mouth is. And, and I'm only 35. And so I like to think that I, I got acclimated to giving very early on. Uh, even when I was a Hill staffer, I would shell out even 25, 50 bucks when I thought that it would give me access to women who were part, who were thought leaders, who I could learn from and be part of conversations that would, you know, create a GOP that was more inclusive, perhaps even in giving the facade that we were. Um, but what happened to me in 2016 was that I elevated my voice and spoke out and I exercised my first amendment right and I was persecuted for it. I was a lifelong Republican and I, in April of 20, uh, actually earlier than that, March of 2016, spoke out against Donald Trump, who was not even the presumptive nominee at the time. And I was booted by my own party that I had been a foot soldier for. So it, it was just sort of mystifying to me um, really why the party wouldn't encourage diversity of thought when we seemed to be a home for it. And I went on, I briefly left the party for three months to work for Evan McMullen, a very Quixotic long shot candidate who was a conservative that tried to mount an independent bid against Trump. We were obviously very unsuccessful, but we tried. And then I went in back into the party, I said, to be a change agent, to speak about what I think are the problems. When people meet me, they are absolutely fascinated how I can be a Republican. And that is largely based off my skin color and my age. And I think that's that's not where we should be right now in the country. In Our state of politics should not be where it is. And I, I hope to be part of the change that I think the party actually really wants. I, I'm encouraged by women that are doing what Julie does, what Winning for Women is doing. The, the efforts I've been a part of, I remain encouraged by my Republican sisters um, because I know that there there's a narrative out there about us. And, and when I meet more women like me that are right-leaning and really believe that the party needs change and maybe Trump's just not great for us, or maybe they cast a vote for Trump and they're fine with it. I understand that woman too, because I think we should be a home for many people and many ideas. And Julie, as we come to you, I want to ask you how you deal with this issue as somebody who's working so hard on this. I have not ever heard someone use the term Republican sisters. It is almost emotional for me to hear Rena say that, especially because if you listen to the podcast, you know, I practically begged people to vote for Evan McMullen. Um, <laughs> But, but that is a hard thing to overcome. It, it flows so naturally when we're having the conversation about Emerge and Emily's List. And it really is like, Republican sisters, that's amazing. Where are they? <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that's, a, that's a good point and uh, one that's important to talk about. And I think there certainly is a sisterhood amongst ourselves, those are of, of us that are in the trenches daily, but on a larger scale, it's, it's absent. And I don't... I don't Probably no one noticed, but when my sister from Emily's List got off the stage earlier, we gave each other a big hug. We've been sharing the stage for years and years and years, and I, I gave her a big congratulations. I hadn't seen her since the election, and she said, keep up the fight. And that's what we need to do, because she also understands that the stronger we are on the Republican side by elevating and electing more Republican women, the stronger the Democratic women are going to be. We're only going to achieve parity if the Republicans can catch up to where the Democrats are. Yeah. And, 
And it's, and it's critically important. And I think the Democratic women in the House are going to find out their lives would be a lot easier if they had more Republican women in the House to work with. It's just a, a, a fact. We do have the most number of Republican women ever in the U.S. Senate. We have eight, uh, which is great. Um, I'll tell you that even before we were at this number, um, Joni Ernst from Iowa used to tell a story that the women would gather often between, between boats and when something important was going on, and they'd walk in together just to make the guys crazy because they'd say, what are they up to? Knowing that you know, they could make all the difference in the entire Senate with just being four of them at the time. And so now that we have eight, that's awesome. Bad news is four of them are up for re-election again. Martha McSally, who replaced John McCain on a bank shot election, non-election appointment in Arizona. Uh, Joni Ernst is in cycle. Shelley um, Moore Capito is in cycle. And uh, Cindy Hyde-Smith has to run again in Mississippi. And so while we're up to eight, we could easily be down to four, depending on what happens in the next 21 months. What we know is that if you are 30% in your caucus, so 30% of the Democrats, you've got major clout. If you're 25%, you've got major clout. If you are 7%, you know, the price you pay for voting against the 93% is enormous. It, it is a huge hurdle to get over. So y'all are gonna have a, even a much harder time. It's not about finding candidates for you all. It's, it's the structural impediments at this point point, just at this point in history, you've got to get up to 14%, 18% in order to get to 25%. So push, push, push. But don't take the seats of any, like, <laughs> no. Oh, we're coming at you. <laughs> I think there's a few in there that we might have to look at. <laughs> Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you Ritual for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water. 
leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy Filtered Showerhead is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze. And its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy Filtered Showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code PANTSUIT at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. How many women need to be running to get to that critical mass? And how do you recruit those women when it's the numbers are daunting, right? If you kind of, I think, I think about um, my home state of Kentucky, when I consider what my options would be if I were interested in running, I don't see a place, you know, because we have very entrenched men representing our state. The party apparatus is run by men. Who, who's the person who does this outreach state by state, as you were talking about? I think it's outside the party. I, I have to say it. I mean, it, it's because of packs like Julie's, because of efforts like winning for women um, and, and mine. And I, I, I just have to say that, you know, we created this out of frustration. If you go to Women's Public Leadership Network, you won't see my face, you won't see my name or my co-founders because it's not for the glory. We are so tired of sitting in the back seat and seeing people take the glory and just cozy up with members of this administration so they can have a nice lunch at the White House. It's not about that. The fact that there are so few millennial women Republicans across the country, I mean, this is a huge problem because that means I have to go to more Kid Rock concerts and <laughs> RNC conventions. And I just want to see Jay-Z and Beyonce once. That's it. That's all I'm asking for. <laughs> I really think, um, and this is kind of a broader point, that there needs to be a major culture change in the GOP. Um, we have elected, you know, men, congressmen, who, for example, criticize Elise Stefanak for trying to get more women involved in the GOP by calling it, quote, identity politics, not realizing that the identity politics of the GOP is white men. So they get mad anytime someone else um, really provides an alternative view. And that's troubling. That needs to change if you want to recruit more women. We're obviously, and I think every group on this on this dais is probably looking at the same of figuring out, you know, where those good candidates are that have a path forward, who have a shot. And at the end of the day, our system needs to support women earlier, um, you know. And and you know, Rena mentioned taking it outside of the party system, and that's why um, that's why it's important. You know, my group winning for women is is you know has been involved in primaries and will continue to be so. And 
And I know that right now and VPAC and the others are absolutely committed to doing the same. And frankly, we're all doing it in slightly different ways. Um, you know, I think there's some commonality. We all try to figure out the best ways to find, you know, through our respective PACs, find those hard dollars and get them to them at a, at a good critical point where they can go use them to actually get through that primary. Um, you know, my group takes a look at it and says, how can we then go support them and make sure that they're getting the outside group support um, that gets them through that critical time as well? Um, and, you know, I think one of the other things that we all deal with on the Republican side is people kind of look at us and say, well, why would we need more than one women's group? Um, and the numbers are I was themselves. wondering that, too. Yeah. And, and to me, it's ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> because we can't get along. Right. I mean, quite frankly. Right? Yeah. The infighting. Yeah. Particularly, yeah. Julie. The infighting. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, but it, at the end of the day, you know, a check to winning for women, a check to VPAC, a check to right now, a check to a bunch, you know, that's dollars that go to women when they need it. And frankly, our men are getting that support from, you know, many, many, many different sources. Um, and, and, but I think, you know, to sort of take it back up to the, to the answer to your question, I don't know that it, there's a one-size-fits-all answer to how we pull more women in. Um, there's so many factors we have work to do. But getting that support to our women at a place that gives them the opportunity to get through the election cycle and then includes primaries and generals is, I think, where the systemic change has to happen. Yeah, and we, obviously joking about it, but the reality is there is no Emily's List on the Republican side. The closest we're getting is with Winning for Women, uh, Rebecca's group, and it's still not going to be the same. Um, Emily's List, I think everybody gets this, is a cause organization. Uh, it's pro-choice. And so there's no, um, and, and this is a good thing on the Republican side, is that there's not just one pro-life organization. You know, we're ViewPAC has no litmus test. You can be pro-life or pro-choice. We want you to represent the district you're running in. And, you know, there are conservative districts in this country where the majority of the constituents are pro-life, and that's reality. And there are districts where, you know, Ileana was, was pro-choice in, in, in Miami. And so you need to fit the district you're running in. However, Emily's just does a tremendous job of reaching out to all women getting them engaged, getting them um, in the pipeline, which we keep talking about. Our friends at Emerge, there is no Emerge on the Republican side. We often joke, we, we two are also on panels together with, with my, my sister from Emerge, and I say, well, just give us like two training sessions. Like, just do it for us. Like, we'll help everybody. It'll be good. We can leave out the, you know, the top you know, secrets, but teach our women how to run. And we laugh about it, but maybe someday we could. You know, maybe someday the idea of electing women across the board will be stronger than, you know, the things that unite us are, are greater than the things that divide us. And I think that, you know, it would be great. And the, the, the title of this, of this panel was, you know, Primary Challenges. And, um, our problem is not really recruiting Republican women. I mean, we, we always need more, but our problem is getting them through primaries. It's just there's there's an institutional problem where we don't get support our female c candidates early enough because, well, the guys don't care. Um, if they don't have to spend money in a seat, you know, if it's a safe Republican district and they have five guys and one tremendous woman, at the end of the day, whoever comes out, probably going to win the seat because it's a Republican seat. And there's no thumb put on the scale for diversity. And I think this cycle, at least I hope, um, this was the bottom of the barrel for us and that looking forward, we are going to understand that if we have an exceptionally qualified woman and exceptionally qualified guy, it's going to make a difference if we help the exceptionally qualified woman. 
a huge part of women getting elected. And one of the reasons that we have spent so much time on our show talking with women running for office is telling the stories of those women running for office. And a major part of the seismic shift in women's representation has been more women covering these elections. So we ended by talking about how these stories are told with a very distinguished panel. Elisa Munoz, the executive director of the International Women's Media Foundation, Susan Page, the Washington bureau chief from USA Today, and Maureen Bunyan, a veteran TV journalist. If you live in Washington, D.C., you've probably seen Maureen on your television many, many times, talked with us about what it's like to be a woman in the media and to cover women who are running for office. Where are we now compared to where we've been in in the experience of being a woman in the field and also of covering women in the field? Let me just tell one, one story, which is when I started covering the White House for Newsday uh, during the Reagan administration, there were two women covering the White House for newspapers. Uh, I was one, and Ann Devroy of the Washington Post was the other. Ann Devroy, one of the greatest reporters uh, I ever knew, uh, who, who sadly passed away too young. But we were the, we, and, and I don't know if any of you knew Ann Devroy, but Ann Devroy and I do not look alike, except <laughs> that we're both women. That would be, uh, I guess, you know, unless you can't tell women apart, we did not look that much alike. But the, <laughs> but the, the men in the Reagan White House and everyone in the White House who counted was a man could not keep us straight, including the, the president who once at a news conference kept referring to me as Anne as everyone giggled and he couldn't figure out why because, you know. But my it, it was so bad that my husband, who was a White House reporter for the Dallas Morning News, when, when both of us went on White House trips, we would stay in a single hotel room since we were married. So there was a trip that he went on that I didn't go on, but Anne Devery went on, and they put Anne and my husband in the same room. <laughs> Because apparently we were completely interchangeable in every way. Now, I got to say, this, this would not happen now in, in two ways, in the, this administration and the last administration. One is because there are a bunch of women in, the, in power who recognize women as, you know, can distinguish among them. Uh, and the other is that there are a lot more women covering the White House. Uh, you know, now it's... it's uh, um, now it's a very, it's a much more diverse group, both in women and in, both in gender and in, in race in it, than it's been in the past. And that is a great thing. I, I, uh, I understand and empathize with Susan's story. Uh, I, my, one of my first jobs uh, was in New York. I, I joined WCBS TV news operation, uh, 19, end of 1971. And I was told by the news director who hired me that one of the reasons I was hired was because I resembled a Puerto Rican woman reporter who had just left the station. I think she left to have a baby. And that this was a good thing. And I thought, oh, okay. I, that's a basis for hiring somebody? And I thought, what is this, the process of thinking like this? You mean, not only do we look alike, but the audience is so stupid <laughs> yeah. that it won't notice that we're two different people. Uh, so this was this happens when you are discounted in a society, and also when you are assumed by those who discount you uh, that you can't figure out what they're doing. So this was a phenomenon. I, as, as Susan says, I don't think it's happening, at least not in, in, in news anymore. But when I came to Washington in 1973, I thought to myself, 
who are the women who are serious in Washington? Who are the women who have high profiles because they have power and because they make important decisions and because they have impact on other people's lives? And I said, well, it's not so much the women in journalism, although there were some, it's the women on Capitol Hill. So I looked at the lives and the behavior and the comportment of women in Congress and a few women in the Senate and said, I want to look like them. I want to speak with the authority that they speak and with the confidence, the self-confidence. And I hope, you know, I don't, I don't want to have an influence like they do because my career has nothing to do with what theirs is. But I said, these are the women to emulate. And then I looked around the country at some of my friends who were living in other cities, uh, including Los Angeles. And I said, you know, the women journalists on television in Los Angeles all look like movie stars <laughs> because those, that's they, the movie stars, the females in that society, quote, community, they were the ones with the power. They were the ones who could influence people. So they set the tone for a lot of younger women. And I've always, I still think that the women in Congress and the women in the media, we have a symbiotic relationship because in the 60s and 70s, as the current and, and the now the outgoing groups of women got power in Congress, uh, women in the media got power along with them. And there was a reason for that because the women who entered the media not only like me could use the women in politics as, as role models, but also because we reported on those women and we helped to bring their names uh, and their profiles into the public eye. Barbara Jordan and Patricia Schroeder and Patsy Mink and all these women. And in turn, those were the Congress people who created and got legislation passed to even the playing field for women in all parts of society. For they worked for equal pay legislation, they supported the equal opportunity uh, legislation, they supported the ERA, they were people who understood women's role in American society and how to improve it. So I see and have seen a symbiotic relationship. And so as you look at your industry, and I know you have some really interesting thoughts on this. What are some structural and procedural changes you're seeing in response to this sort of seismic shift in the media due to the Me Too movement? Well, the IWF has done some research on the status of women in the news media and attacks and harassment against women in the news media. And in our global studies, we have found that uh, nearly 40% of female journals have been harassed or attacked. Uh, the same number applies online, and that's a whole nother conversation. But most of those attacks around the world occur in the workplace, which at the time of our research a few years ago, I found slightly encouraging. And I know that sounds strange given what we've just experienced, but I thought if it's happening in the workplace, at least we have some control over it. And there can be policies put in place to combat it. Whereas if you're just talking about societal attacks against journalists, you have a lot less control over that. What has opposed me too, there are a lot of attempts at structural change in um, major media organizations and some really good examples of good work. 
but I think that it's left to be seen, the impact. Um, culture change takes a long time and trust in a culture change takes a long time. And so you can put in place anything that you want to make it easier for people to complain about attacks. But if they don't trust that that information is not going to be used in a retaliatory way or that it's not going to be taken seriously, then they're not going to report. And what we found, we have an emergency fund for female journalists. And we have female journalists from around the world working in, from major media organizations and foreign bureaus of organizations headquartered in Europe and the US who are being fired when they complain about being harassed because they're subject to the laws in the countries where they're working. And the value of the people who are harassing them is perceived to be greater than their value. And so I think that there's a lot of work left to be done. Obviously, awareness is an immense source of, of progress. And I think that that's what we can count on. So there is, there is change happening, but I think it's left to be borne out. And it, certainly more change should happen in terms of more female leadership in media organizations. And I think that's really the change that needs to happen. That was one of my most favorite conversations of the day. I loved that it's such a symbiotic relationship and how much we can learn from each other. We want to thank everyone involved with this event, from the panelists to the people who came to the team with Swanee Hunt who helped us organize it. It was so unbelievable. I gained so much insight. As a person who talks about this subject a lot, I still learned and thought about things in new and interesting ways. So we really hope you guys enjoyed the conversation. And again, you can check out the entire day's audio over on our Patreon feed. And this content is available to everyone. It's published for the public on patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics. And we are going to leave you this episode with the entire audience at the Seismic Shift event closing out the show. So we're going to say it all together. Ready? One, two, three. Keep it nuanced, y'all. Perfect. And thank you so much for coming. Thank you to Swanee like, and the entire team here. This has been a fabulous event, fabulous conversation. We really appreciate everybody coming out. Don't rush off because we have one more thing. Swanee? Yeah. Well, tell them the words. Stand up. We're going to sing. She's got the whole world in her hands. Okay? Just a few verses. Let's go. She's got the whole Dylan Garvin produces Pantsuit Politics every week. Thanks for making us sound better, Dylan. Elise Knapp is our managing director, which means we could not make it without her scheduling, organization, feedback, and creativity. Thank you, Elise. We couldn't make Pantsuit Politics without support from our listeners. Go to patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics to learn how you can receive more nuance and help us make the show. Special thanks to our executive producers who have committed to supporting us in a major life-giving way. Tracy Putoff, Tim Miller, Cherry Haas, Sarah's husband, Nicholas Holland, and my husband, Chad Silvers. Our theme music is composed and performed by Dante Lima. The music under our ads is composed and performed by Dylan Garvin. Learn more about our lives, live events that we're involved in, and what we're reading each week by signing up for our weekly newsletter at pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. And connect with members of the Pantsuit Politics community by following us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Oh, 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 oh,